Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by my fellow co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Reed. How are you, man? And back by popular demand, my other co-founder of The Lincoln Project, Steve Schmidt. Steve, welcome back to the show. Hey, Reed. So guys, I want to talk a little bit about what we're seeing within the Republican Party. And Steve, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this, so I want to open it up with you. So for time immemorial, there have always been fissures within political movements, coalitions, parties, whatever the case might be, because parties are ultimately an amalgam of different groups who all live together in somewhat harmony because they can't live separately and have any sort of success. For a long time in the Republican Party, it was the national security hawks, the social conservatives, and the sort of small, limited government, individual liberty business types. And that was a coalition that ran for a long time within the Republican Party. But now what we're seeing is that those fissures have nothing to do with ideology because the party espouses no ideology other than power at this point and has now reduced itself to just fighting over power and money. And in the flywheel of today's GOP, those things lead directly to one another. So, Steve, just walk us through briefly, if you wouldn't mind, how you see the junctures here of, you know, the competing wings of the party, whether or not that's McConnell and Trump, as we've talked about recently, or the other factions that are living together in, frankly, disharmony at this point. Well, let's start out with what I think is the most obvious, but is something that I'm just shocked that there seems to be a debate over, and it's whether Donald Trump is a figure of the past or Donald Trump remains a figure of the present and likely to be a figure in our political future. And I think unquestionably, he's a figure of the present and the future. He is the leader of the Republican Party, and the Republican Party such as it is, exists as a fusion between remnants of what you describe, this old conservative movement, but also now overtly white supremacists, white nationalists. We see that in the appeals that Tucker Carlson makes when he talks about replacement theory. This coalition includes fascist Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and militia extremists and other political extremists. And it is anti-democratic. It is contrary to the American tradition. It is un-American in its embrace of blood and soil nationalism combined with a right-wing populism. I think the movement is properly described as a national populist movement. But it is certainly not a movement that is recognizable to anything we've had in the country before that's ever taken power. But there it is. And so this movement 
took a vote on the night of January 6th, and 147 members of the Congress voted in that moment to nullify millions of black votes to install the loser of the election, Trump, as the winner, which would have ended the American Republic. And so these two halves now that exist in coalition are not reconcilable. It's zero sum. And you see this playing out with Trump's pronouncements about the candidates that he supports, partly on a mission of revenge, partly on a imposition of a purity test, a loyalty test, as he seeks to declare his supremacy over the party of the future. And so the question is, is when you look out in Washington, who's in charge? Is Mitch McConnell in charge or is Donald Trump in charge? And I think unquestionably, Donald Trump is in charge. He's in charge of the movement. And this will be a huge feature over the next two years. Now, last thing I'd say about all of this is the word frontrunner and what does it mean? Mario Cuomo was the Democratic frontrunner, though he was never a candidate. And we've always defined frontrunner as the person that achieves certain metrics and name recognition, poll leads. And by any objective measurement, in terms of how we've always applied that word to potential candidates, Donald Trump is the frontrunner, bar none, for the Republican nomination in 2024. It's his for the taking if he wishes to have it. And therefore, this movement, whether it's led by Trump, which I think it will be, or it's led by someone else, remains a potent, dangerous force. And when we look at redistricting, when we look at the likelihood of Republicans taking back the House, the fact of the matter is, is that this movement is alive and well, and taking power is always well within its reach, given the amount of support it has in the country. So, Rick, I was thinking about this before we started recording today, and the incomparable George Carlin used to do this great bit on euphemisms. And the euphemism he used in this one thing that I was watching on YouTube was about how shell shock in World War I went to post-traumatic stress disorder after Vietnam and even up to this day. And the point of it was that it reduced the pain described under jargon. And I wonder if we're seeing some of that not with the pain of a soldier or a Marine or an airman in combat, but here in American politics, that we're utilizing jargon, right wing, far right, whatever, to hide the true ugliness of what it is the Republican Party and the conservative movement is becoming. because. It might have been the day of January 6th. We were all on the phone and we were talking about the fact that that vote they took was really to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands, if not millions of black voters. And that constituted a return or a neo new Jim Crow. And as you have seen now, there is a debate about whether or not you can call what we're seeing not only on voting rights, but also this quote unquote anti-riot legislation, whether or not it's fair to call it Jim Crow. And the idea, Rick, as you've talked about the Overton window, that we're having a conversation about nomenclature as opposed to what it does, says that the political ecology has really accepted what it is we're seeing. I think that's very much on point, Reed, because when people are saying it's voting integrity, and this idea that you're going to couch this spectrum of behavior inside of the nationalist populist movement in some kind of anodyne and safe phrasing 
is very much what a branding advisor, and I hate the word branding and I hate the concept of it, but it's very much what a branding advisor would tell a company or an association to do if their product was killing people or sucked. And so, you know, these guys understand they still can't go out and say, we don't want the black people to vote, but they'll do everything that they can to get near it. They'll make every excuse under the sun to justify laws that have that direct impact. And euphemism for the people on the nationalist populist part of the right is essential because they know that most of their ideas are loathsome to America. But euphemism is also essential in the Washington establishment of both parties to some degree, but primarily the Republican Party trying to unhinge itself from the negative aspects of Trump in a swing election year. They need euphemisms too. They need to talk about the voting integrity bills. They need to say things in a way that lets them dip their toe in the racist waters of the crazy town, but also try to pretend with suburban voters and educated voters that they're different than they were, that they're not Trump's Republican Party, that they don't owe Donald Trump, that he doesn't control their lives, that he doesn't have the power of life and death over every single Republican candidate. I have a challenge, by the way, for any Republican candidate thinking about running for president in 2024. Go to Iowa or New Hampshire and do a campaign event right now. Just go do one. Just go see what happens when Donald Trump notices you. Because that moment will come. He will notice that Nikki Haley or Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Ron DeSantis pokes their head into the early battleground states, and Trump will cut it right off. So as Steve pointed out, People are delusional if they think Trump is not the 2024 frontrunner. And, you know, there's Ross Douthat from the New York Times saying, you know, because we're going after McConnell and Trump and trying to draw a wedge between them, that we want Trump to run again. No, dude. It's because we want to cripple the ability of bad guys to raise money using Donald Trump's name. And, you know, he's doing the same thing. He's living under this illusion of normality. He's trying to re engage with a sense of the world having the rules that it used to have for a hundred years of politics. And anybody who believes that we want Donald Trump to run for president in 2024 is out of their goddamn mind. But what they ought to believe is that if Trump runs for president in 2024, and look, aside from being hit by a meteor, eaten by an alligator, or put in jail, all of which are sadly less likely than you might want, we're going to have to face another era of Trump on the ballot. And we are certainly going to be facing an era where Trumpism is the dominant political force on the right in this country. And that demands a response because of the loathsome and horrifying character of what it really is. So, Steve, just to continue with the euphemisms for just a second, I have my highlighted copy of the America First Caucus policy proposals here. And one of them mentions Anglo-Saxon political traditions. What does that mean to you if people are being honest? What does that mean? It means white Protestantism as a culturally superior force, racially, politically, sociologically, culturally. It's a political statement really about white supremacy. It's code word for every white supremacist, white nationalist in the country. And this is rooted, again, in ideology. What Tucker Carlson talked about when he talks about replacement theory, none of this are new ideas. They became discredited by the middle of the 20th century for a very simple reason, is that 
by the time the politics had played out around their adoption by a political regime, by the Germans, by the Nazis, a hundred million people around the world were killed. So this wasn't something that was ever talked about overtly because of the profound tragedy that lay at the end of scientific race theory from its beginning to its tragic ending. And so we're in a new era and things that we thought we would never see again, we're having a hard time describing them and calling them what precisely it is because the only thing we can compare it to is something that we've been raised to believe is incomparable. But yet the place that you have to go and look is a place that in the 1930s or another fascistic autocratic movements, what happened? How's it playing out? You look at, for example, what's happening in France right now, where Le Pen is ahead in the polls. Joe Biden's presidency is off to a successful start. He is the leader globally of the democracy movement. This is an important role for an American president. It's good that that leadership role has been restored to the American presidency. But the movement that we compete against now in a new era is a dangerous one that is both winning abroad and can win here again at any time. And there's just no question about that. And the last thing I'd like to say is that if we had a functioning political media in this country, by and large, like none of this is particle physics. Like all you have to do is go ask these people a question. Go ask a question about Donald Trump and his future. Establish with what we're saying, whether it's right or wrong. Go ask Ted Cruz if you think Trump is a figure of the past or the present. Because like at this point in an election cycle, people wouldn't have been afraid to say that Al Gore shouldn't run again or John Kerry shouldn't run again or Bush 41 shouldn't run again. They just wouldn't have been. So, Rick, to that end, to me, what I'm seeing, I want to get your opinion, is that the cascading effect of what Steve just described is that it allows what Trumpism opened the door for, for other people to walk through either voluntarily, enthusiastically, or just because they have no place else to go. But now you have to be in that wake if you want to be successful with the Republican primary electorate. And I think we're starting to see, you know, as we talked about, what happened on January 6th was not the end of something, but just the beginning. Yeah. I mean, look, to Steve's point a moment ago, ask a Republican if Joe Biden is actually the legitimate president of this country. Ask a Republican if the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the insurrection that cost five lives was an insurrection. And, you know, the reality is on the right, a lot of people say, oh, the media is so liberal. They're libtards and they just love progressives and blah, blah, blah. That's like the fundamental religious tenet of all Republicanism today is that the liberal media is the real problem. But the Washington, D.C. media ecosystem isn't liberal or conservative. It's transactional. It's functional. And so you see a lot of very, very bad actors in our politics who are protected because they're good sources and they're good access journalists. And they will hand over to a journalist answers from Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump. And the only reason that these people are let in the door is because Washington is essentially a town full of toll booths. And some of the dirtiest players in this have great access to the most important people. And so you see Jason Miller, a guy you wouldn't let drive your kids to school. These kind of people have access 
And that's part of the problem in D.C. right now. When we've been attacked as Lincoln Project in the press a few times, part of it's because we don't have anything we're selling. We're not trying to sell access. We're not saying, hey, buddy, you know, uh, give us this and that. We'll get you in front of Mitch McConnell so your bill gets heard. You know, none of that is part of our purview. But these people in this culture are all about this transactional access to power, whether it's media or lobbying or money. You know, Steve, this is one of those things, too, where it's important for us as we have these discussions to also bring it back down to how it affects individual Americans, because there are things that go on in Washington. If it's a fight between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump over power and money, ultimately, it's because who is going to run for high office who's going to be nominated for high office, and who's ultimately going to be elected. You know, whether or not it's a McConnell-backed candidate or a Trump-backed candidate, at the end of the day, those people are going to go to Washington fundamentally not caring about governing, because at this point for Republicans and for a lot of politicians, the performance is the only thing that matters. Absolutely correct. And essentially in these contests, you have two unvirtuous halves to choose from. You have profoundly cynical the McConnell wing, and you have the crazy, which is the Trump wing in so many of these contests. But again, the movement is in this inherently extremist movement. At this point, when you look at the things that it's done, that it's doing, is they try to hold this coalition together, which is a very difficult prospect for them to be able to do. And so, Rick, on the performative and the ugly aspect, there was a bill in the U.S. Senate recently to make specific that crimes against Asian Americans were civil rights crimes. And the only person in the chamber to vote no on that bill was Josh Hawley. And so here he is, and he knows what he's doing is wrong, and he almost relishes the ugliness of it. Josh Hawley is part of a political culture that has emerged in the wake of Trumpism. And look, if you go back to patient zero in the 2010 election, you know a lot of these guys are very much political descendants of Sharon Angle in Nevada, who was completely batshit, bug crazy. But that culture is rewarded by an ecosystem that you go out and do something asinine, like Josh Hawley did, and you end up with a moment where he can say, well, no, the libs are attacking me because I wouldn't vote for their bill, and oh, I'm the victim. And then he'll go on Fox, and he'll be the victim, and he'll cry, and he'll, you know, they're trying to cancel me. You know, Josh Hawley did this because he is part of an ecosystem, a flywheel of people who do hateful, dumb shit. And when other people say, hey, you're doing hateful, dumb shit, then they run to Fox and they cry and they weep and they tear their hair out and send out email appeals saying they're trying to cancel me. They hate me. The liberals are trying. And, you know, it's not liberals, Josh. It's people who aren't assholes. But, you know, he is fundamentally an asshole. Speaking of assholes. I read yesterday that Matt Gates, our buddy Matt down in Florida, just before he started buying TV in the safest Republican district in the state and one of the safest in the country and sending out massive amounts of direct mail to try to protect his seat, Matt also <laughs> paid Roger Stone $5,000 in consulting fees. I mean, I feel like we should visit with Matt again soon. You know, I don't know if we can ever win that district, but Matt is he's a perfect example of the same thing. He's an asshole who's done things that are horrible and wants to be treated like he's a victim. He brought this on himself. So, Steve, we've talked about the problems. We've elucidated the issues. We've identified the bad guys. We've uncovered the euphemisms. Now what do we do about it? 
Well, can I just say one thing that you know Rick talked about earlier, which is an important point in all of this? I think at the core is, you know, again, the inability to establish causality, you know, between events and between action. So let's look at the thing that Rick said, right? Which is that if you believe that the presidency was stolen from Trump, you believe, therefore, that you're governed illegitimately, that you're occupied by Joe Biden, right? The illegitimate president. Once you're occupied, and you're occupied by a lie, by conspiracy, by people that are trying to destroy your way of life, stoked by what Tucker Carlson is saying and what other paid liars are saying that are part of this propaganda network, you very, very quickly move into violent territory, right? Like it's only a couple of steps. Once you believe A, then B, Make sense. So if you take these people, right, and every one of them, in my view, should be prosecuted who engaged in sedition against the country. But I also believe that the accountability should not be bottom down. It should include the people that incited it as well. But once you believe that you're occupied, once you believe that your freedom has been taken, your choice invalidated, by the other. All wars, all conflicts are fought over, you know, one of three things. They're fought over resources, ideology, or religion, or some combination of one or more of those three things. And so we're at a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place in the country because of a political extremism. And it's made more dangerous by an inability to talk squarely about it, directly about it, to identify it properly, to contextualize it, to contextualize it against history and moments in history, to understand that none of this is new, to understand where it's led before. And so here we are coming into an election cycle that'll be here before we know it, where there's a high likelihood, in fact, that one of the two houses will turn over to the Republicans probably the House, and you have a Speaker McCarthy who incited both violence and sedition through his lying and his rhetoric as recently as 100 days ago. It's a remarkable political moment. So to that end, Rick, I did an interview the other night with a guy, and we were talking about McCarthy as potentially the Speaker, and he said, McCarthy, you'll be lucky if we have McCarthy, because he's a guy who you know has always been able to raise a lot of money. He's a chameleon. Right. Since Steve and I knew him back in California a million years ago, he, you know, picked out Donald Trump's starburst to make sure he was happy. He's bent the knee in Mar-a-Lago, but he is far from the power center in his conference at this point. You know, he tried to run for speaker once before it was derailed with some personal issues. So what's to say that we wouldn't get somebody like a Jim Jordan or someone far worse in the speaker's chair next in you know January of 2023? Our Democratic friends who right now believe that Joe Biden is going to have four years of an uninterrupted skate as president. He's a good dude. and Nobody's going to try to screw him. They need to really, really understand what happens if the Republican Party takes back the House. And they have a very good shot at taking back the House. Not like a somewhat shot. They have a really good shot at it. In 100 years, only three times has the party out of the White House lost seats or not gained seats. 120 years. 120 years. Exactly, Steve. 
they don't have to gain a lot of seats for there to be Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And right now, a lot of Democrats are falling into the trap that they tend to fall into, and they're saying, well, you know, everything's fine. Everyone loves our policies. Look at everyone loves our policies. They think our policies are great. Well, elections are not based on policies. They are based on people. And if the Democrats don't prepare themselves and fight the way they need to fight, the way we fight, we may end up with Kevin McCarthy out there impeaching. And I promise you people, you laugh at it, but they will impeach Joe Biden on some bullshit pretense. They will impeach Vice President Harris on some bullshit pretense. They will undo everything they can. They will wreck everything in sight. They will end up with a disproportionate sense of urgency and the necessity to exercise power, and they will do so. We, these are our people. We know these guys. You know That's what they're going to do. And yes, you know it used to be that Paul Ryan had 30 or 40 restive sort of Trumpy Freedom Caucus types in the House. And McCarthy, who was a guy who, remember, in 2016 said he thought Trump was being paid by the Russians, who became the Trumpiest of the Trumpers. You know, those people are now the majority of the Republican caucus, and there's nothing they hate more than someone who's not playing the full Trump ball game. There's nothing they hate more than somebody who isn't cheerleading and saying Donald Trump is farts smell like rainbows and he will be a thousand-year president. They may well say, we don't want Kevin McCarthy. We want somebody who can own the libs, somebody who's great on Fox, somebody who'll go on the air at night and blow shit up. I mean, look, Matt Gates may well run for speaker just to try to protect himself. These people have a lot of crazy in the stack now. And when you have crazy around you, you want to use that crazy. And those people who are of this new version of the Republican Party that is Trumpy, conspiratorial, racially motivated and driven by, you know, just win, baby. There's no ideology there. Those people will do crazy things because they see everything for them as the apocalypse. Everything is the end. You got to go now. We got to win now. Otherwise, it's all over. So, Steve, you know, there's the electoral politics piece, but we can't forget the media space. We should not forget the cultural space. The Department of Justice told the federal courts to expect about 500 people to be indicted and brought to trial for the insurrection on January 6th. What are the chances that some, if not most, of these 500 people suddenly become martyrs to the Trumpist national populist cause? Some of them will be. Some of them are. When you look at the extremist websites and you look at the chatter, you know, at the groups that have been pushed underground by being restricted on other social media sites. So, martyrdom, grievance, victimization the stab in the back. This is all central to the ideology, to the movement, to the extremism of the movement always. We'll see. And we'll see if there are any unindicted co-conspirators, right? If any congressmen are indicted, you know, if any Trump family members are indicted, we just don't know where it will all wind up, how far up the ladder it will go. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're going to find out, right, if there's any accountability up the ladder. You know, where once again, do we just see like the people at the bottom of the food chain get it? Well, the people that caused it, you know, whether it's the banking crisis or a hundred other instances you could think of, get away with it scot-free. Well, on that front, history is not on the little guy's side, unfortunately. But one thing I want to close with, guys, is the idea that, you know, none of this stuff that we're seeing now should be a surprise, whether or not it's the reintroduction of violence into our political landscape 
whether or not it is the voting rights bills we're seeing and now whether or not it's these anti-demonstration, anti-assembly bills that we're seeing pass all over the place or at least being introduced all over the place. And so all of it leads to one conclusion, that there will be places in states first and potentially at the federal level where it will be harder, if not criminal, to make your voice heard under what we used to call the First Amendment. And I think, Steve, you've said something for a long time, and I think it's something that we hope that our listeners and our supporters and all Americans will heed, is that in this fight, democracy cannot be the soft side, that the bad guys will always do the bad thing. And the good guys throughout history have tended to believe that they won't, and that if they promise they won't, they'll hold to that promise. And whether or not it's Munich or wherever else, we always know that the bad guys are going to do whatever it is they're going to do, and it always takes the good guys longer and sometimes too long to figure that out. And I hope as we go forward here that we can continue to be those guys who are waving the flag, raising the alarm and saying, this is going to happen. We told you this is going to happen. And that now is the time we have to start this work, because if we wait until January, March, June of next year, it's likely to be far too late. And the people, to Steve's point, who instigated this, who serve as the proprietors of this behavior and this ideology will be well down the path to re-election or to election, millions of dollars in their accounts. And before you know it, we're sitting up there with an anti-democratic Speaker of the House who decides his first thing is going to be to, as Rick said, impeach Kamala Harris for something regarding the border. So with that, I want to thank you guys. Rick, where can we find you on Twitter? I am at the Rick Wilson, And for better or for worse, I'm tweeting again at a pace people were accustomed to in the past. So beware. All right. And Steve, are you back on the Twitters or are you watching and waiting? Still taking a break. I'm enjoying my social media break. As well you should. And you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Uh, I want to thank everybody. Please, you know, go to our website, follow our social media feeds, watch our videos on YouTube. This week we will be having a number of things that I think folks will enjoy. We've got some information that we're putting together that I think will be indicative of where the Republican Party is. But until then, thank you for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.